Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, I'm joined by Milin Mejere, serial entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Yieldstreet, a digital wealth management platform that aims to transform the investing landscape by enabling individual investors to invest in asset classes such as real estate, marine finance, art finance, legal finance, and commercial loans. The company has raised over $180 million in equity and debt from top investors, including Edison Partners, Graycroft, and Rain Ventures. We discuss his successful entrepreneurial journey and the path to Yield Street as a second-time founder, company culture, challenges of building an investing platform and disrupting an industry traditionally reserved for the wealthy, leveraging regulatory opportunities for a new asset class, the incredible impact of COVID on the business, and a lot more. Now let's dive in to a really fascinating conversation with Milin Mehere. Well, Milin, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Welcome and welcome to Wharton because, you know, you're family. From what I understand, you have a lot of connections to Wharton, and it's just so nice to have someone that uh, you know, is part of the ecosystem. How are you today? I'm great, Miguel. Thanks for having me. Excited. We're excited to have you. So, Milin, before we get started, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to your current role. Of course, I would love to. So my background actually is a classic background. I came here to go to school from India. I'm originally from Bombay. Grew up in Bombay during the 90s, which was really an exciting time to grow up and go to college at that time because, you know, India was just opening up. And so the spirit of entrepreneurship and technology was just starting to take roots. And so uh, it was exciting time for me to go to school at that time and then came here really to expand my horizons. And... My background really has been in software and technology, really built my career, taking big ideas, but then using technology and data to like really bring them to market. And my first experience out of school was with a company called i2 Technologies, which really kind of revolutionized supply chain software. And they were actually the company that coined the term supply chain and made it so mainstream. Like today, if you think about it, supply chain is just everybody knows what that is. But to build software to optimize your supply chain, optimize your manufacturing logistics was very new back in the day. And uh, the company was very successful during the whole dot-com boom. So really kind of dug my heels into corporate America, learning everything there is during the dot-com boom as well as bust. And a great time to be there. And then um, after that, as you were talking about the Wharton Connection, my wife, Maida, decided to uh, pursue her MBA at, at Wharton, and so we moved to Philly. And uh, I was fortunate that she introduced me to uh, founder of Yodel, and we together co-founded Yodel, which was an ad tech platform for small businesses. And uh, there was also a Wharton professor, uh, Karthik, who was involved in founding the company. So it was really an exciting time to be there in Philadelphia. Subsequently, we moved the company to New York, and we were really founded when there was a time when online advertising was still very nascent, Miguel. So this was, think about 2005, 2006, Google had just gone public and was a small company. If you can imagine, there was no iPhone and Yelp and Facebook existed, but were almost irrelevant, right? They're too small. But there was this $100 billion local ad ecosystem. 
and all the small businesses needed online presence and they really needed to get found online. And so we were the early pioneers of that ecosystem. And then together with uh, Angie's List and Constant Contact, there were like you know, hundreds of companies, including you know companies like uh, Shopify that came out of that whole movement. And so over the next 10 years, we built it into you know, 200 million plus in revenue, 1,400 people. Really exciting time. And then ultimately were acquired by web.com. And now my kind of third career phase, if you will, is dedicating my time to Yield Street, which is an alternative investment platform. And the thesis really is how do you provide access to low correlated alternative investments that are generally not accessible to most people? And the type of products that, uh, you know, generally large institutions and high net worth individuals or family offices do, how do you kind of make them not only accessible, but uh, help people really understand them and try to complement them in their portfolio? So really spending the last five or six years doing that. Outstanding, outstanding. And and I got to confess, we haven't had a lot of founders from the alternative investment space, but that's definitely going to change starting with you because it's a fascinating space. It's growing. Well, let's talk about Yield Street. So you currently, and correct me if I'm wrong, over $1.3 billion have been invested on Yield Street and you've expanded to multiple asset classes, right? But let's go back to the beginning, right? Let's go back to the initial days and months, how did the idea come about and how was your process to really take it from zero to what it is today? Yeah, of course. So actually one point, close to 1.7 billion have been invested on the platform. And so the idea of Miguel was actually pretty straightforward. And some of the biggest ideas come from founder pain points. So the idea for Yield Street was first in my mind long before I actually started the company. I don't know where you were when the global financial crisis hit, but all of us remember kind of what happened to our portfolio. So for me, it was a very rude awakening. I, as I told you, came here as an immigrant student, saved, worked hard. Me and my wife were pretty prudent. We were told 60-40 portfolio, we invested. Then 2008 happened, 2009 happened, and I'm looking at my portfolio, it's down 50%. And I was really disturbed. I had two reactions. One was a little frustration and anger towards Wall Street because I had done what was asked of me, done everything right, and I felt I was left holding the bag. The other side was I realized that I am overexposed to the stock market. I don't have access to like non-correlated income generating products and less volatile products. And by the way, I didn't know what low correlation, you know, all of these technical terms meant at the time. But I knew that I wanted access to more income generating products. So again, as a prudent consumer, I went to my financial advisor. I said, hey, can I get access to Blackstone or Apollo or you know, some real estate fund? He started laughing. He said, at your account size, not really, unless you're willing to put you know, high six-figure, seven-figure money and lock it for seven to 10 years, like really there is not investment options available. So that kind of stuck in my mind, uh, Miguel. And then as I was leaving Yodel, in the subsequent years, there was a lot of you know, fintech evolution, regulatory changes, right? Like Yield Street really could not exist seven, eight years ago. So there were all these regulatory changes where you could actually advertise the accredited investor definition change. You had a larger sample of people who could advertise. And then companies like SoFi and AngelList and Betterment and like a bunch of real estate platforms, they all kind of started coming up. And so for me, I said, listen, this is really a white space that people really need access to. Just the way I have problem, my friends, family, extended people would have this same issue. 
but i had a tiny little bit of a problem which is never done investing professionally right and so while i understood kind of on a personal level what this investment meant i'd never done it professionally so that's really where my co-founder michael wise comes into picture I was very fortunate to actually have met him and he came from the alternative investment world really understood risk management compliance you know various types of alternative assets and i complemented that on technology operations marketing and so that's really the fi- you know founding story miguel about uh, you know how yield street came to be and we started you know little over 5 years ago now we have about 250000 people on the platform as you alluded to we have invested close to funded close to 1.7 billion on the platform and really excited to see what comes how the alternative investment ecosystem is evolving yeah so it's really about democratizing some of those financial tools that have been reserved for the wealthy right i think i i definitely read that a portfolio of a high net worth individual can have you know in this double digits percentage of alts whereas retail investors is 1 to 2% so i'm guessing you're trying to change That's exactly that. right miguel and furthermore actually if you think about institutions they have over 55% in alts exposure okay so the way institutions invest so like if you think about pension funds and endowments and all the lps that are part of private equity right like that has really kind of grown over the last i would say 20 years so they have 10 times or 12 times more exposure than a typical retail and and you are absolutely alluded to within kind of retail there is the high net worth family office segment that have higher exposure but uh, for most retail affluent mass affluent it's probably 1 or 2% so that really is the gap that we are trying to bridge and solve and i think the main thing also is that you have to do it in a manner that's consumable right to the end customer so one of the main things that you have to do is to make sure that not only are you fractionalizing the investment but also how do you educate your user base to make sure that they understand because alternatives is a very broad term right and so within alternatives like how do you think through what your portfolio should be and how you should think about investing so you mentioned that this has been made possible through regulation right and definitely that has helped you and in the industry but that doesn't come without its own challenges right maybe you can tell us about some of the main challenges that you've encountered along the way yeah so obviously one of the main things is that post passage of jobs act there are a couple of things that happened so one is accredited investor definition was um, made income based versus net worth based so that opened up 10 million odd people to be able to invest in private investments then there was a regulation d that allowed people to raise money through various different platforms actually angel list uh, uses bunch of them seed invest things like that then there was a general solicitation meaning you could actually advertise online and so i think that was really a key catalyst 506c so regulation has been keeping up and i think that's really good obviously the role of regulation is very important because in financial services that's kind of the counterbalance to make sure that you are making the right products available for the right audience and so i think that is very important but even within the last year miguel if you see in november or in december the stc uh, further relaxed some of the accredited investor uh, rules and then earlier i think during the summer department of labor uh, put out a circular saying that 401k plans 
they are looking into allowing for ONK plans to invest in alternatives as well. So that regulation is changing. And, you know, obviously, in terms of challenges, when we launch investment products, we have various different types of legal structures. So the challenge is really to make sure that you have to file and get the right approvals. And that takes time. And there is lead time. And, and you have to follow uh, lots of rules uh, to ensure that uh, it fits in the box that is approved by the government, by the SCC. So those obviously are going to be always there. But I think because of technology and uh, because of access to data and the way we consume content, once you have defined that, then you have various different options to actually make the connection to the end user and deliver that product. So that's really good. And then, by the way, the other aspect, Miguel, of all this is that you also create some competitive advantages for yourself once you've kind of you know, invested time in figuring out the right legal structures and things like that, because that helps you generally uh, have that competitive advantage. Milin, let's talk a little bit about your partners because you can't make all this magic happen without some key partnerships. We've had, for example, on the show, Eric Satz from Alto IRA. I believe you partner with them. But uh, let's hear a little bit more about uh, your partners and how operationally, how you make this happen. Yeah. So, uh, Miguel, for us, the main partnership is on the supply side. So when we are actually putting the investment products on the platform. And so it's worthwhile for us, for the benefit of your listeners, to talk about the types of asset classes we deal with. So on Yield Street, we obviously have real estate and various different strategies within real estate. But we also have art as an asset class. And what we do is actually, you don't invest in art, but we lend against an art portfolio that you may have. So you know it's just exactly like a collateral that you would have because art obviously is very valuable. So similar to a real estate collateral that you would have and borrow against that. Then we do uh, shipping and marine finance. We do private credit. So equipment finance, auto loans, supply chain financing, receivable financing, things of those nature. And then uh, we have legal finance. So we have a variety of different asset classes and uh, various different strategies that people have uh, access to. So then going back to your question, we have an internal team, an investment team. And we have asset class heads that are obviously experts in each of those asset classes. So, uh, for example, in art, our CIO and MD is Cynthia Sachs, 20 years experience. She was at Metaxas, Morgan. And then she was actually one of the founding team members of Athena Art Finance, which we actually acquired from Carlyle. On the other side, on the real estate side, we have Mitch Rosen, 20 years at Brigade and Marathon, which are two very large real estate funds on the street. So that's one aspect of it. But then the other aspect is really working with originators. So those are the partnerships. So these are all experts and essentially originators slash asset managers in their each respective area. So, for example, in real estate, we work with Avatar. And so we have thousands of people on our network. And uh, the idea is to really work with them. And so they are the ones who are usually sourcing the deals. And uh, we participate alongside. So as an example, let's say there is a $10 million multifamily unit or a apartment complex what we would do is we would maybe buy 7 million participation and then the originator might keep 3 per, uh, 3 million participation for their own fund or their own lps and so that's really how the model works and we have large and small originators we're talking to you know large uh, credit funds and pe funds we are in fact launching another fund in the next couple of weeks with a aviation space so we are continuing to develop those and we you know, announce them you know, as they become available. So those are very critical components 
of making sure that we are getting the right type of product. There is a right level of due diligence and like there is expertise with external parties that we can actually bring to bear. Fascinating. And now let's talk about the other side, right? And that is your customers. How would you describe your typical customer? Yeah, so our typical customer might be very similar to your listener, actually, Miguel. So frankly speaking, median age is about 45. And I think we are very proud of that because generally, uh, based on the research that we have, that people don't get access to all still they are in their retirement phase, right? Like 65 plus is generally kind of what we have seen. So we've been able to bring that down. And a typical customer is, obviously, we have investors in almost all states, but uh, concentrated in big cities, right? Like New York and LA and Florida and Texas, uh, California, of course. And uh, these are people, till last summer, our platform was only open to accredited investors. And then last summer, we launched something uh, called the Yield Street Prism Fund that was uh, you know, made open to non-accredited investors as well. So uh, we tend to, the, the customer tend to skew typically, you know, doctors, lawyers, people from Wall Street, but people from the industry, both tech and like regular industry, right? So you could be a manager at PNG or ExxonMobil, but or you could be a manager with a tech company like Facebook or Google or whatever may be the case. So that's kind of the general demographic, if you will, of the platform. And, uh, you know, most of our users mostly come through digital and a lot of it is referral, but we also get it through all the digital channels and that's how they find about Yield Street. Miguel, as you might have alluded to earlier, there is a lot of discussion around alternatives. JP Morgan just uh, also put out a press release. I think it was not press release, but just an article last month, which is how do you 60-40 may not be enough. And they are saying that alts is not optional, but now becoming mandatory to everybody's portfolio. So there is a lot of discussion around also the last few years, and we believe that it's going to continue to evolve in the next few years. So we are definitely believers in that. Yeah, there's definitely momentum and more coverage also from the industry. So how big is the company today? How many people? It's about 100 people, a little less. And how have you recruited your team? What has been your process? Because I imagine you're a fast-growing company, so obviously talent is going to be extremely important. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Obviously, a very, very important question because recruitment is always a critical aspect of any technology company's growth. So for us, it's really an interesting... So let me start like... It's an interesting dynamic, Miguel, because we are truly fintech. So on one side, Again, we are not doing like digital payments or like payment transfer and stuff like that, that, you know, you don't need kind of the financial services expertise. On one side, we have credit, right? And that's like hardcore financial services. On the other side, we have tech. And so it's really been a very interesting blend because we need both sides. And that also has like a cultural impact, right? Because how do you kind of really develop that culture that like, you know, really meshes both aspects to it. But uh, for us... Uh, our strategy has been to always find best people and we've uh, you know, tried to do that intelligently. So we have actually an office in South America that has a lot of engineering presence. We also uh, in Buenos Aires and Porto Alegre. And then we have uh, an engineering office in Malta also, along with obviously our headquarters, which is in New York. So we've tried to optimize for resources. With regards to recruitment, it's a combination of referral and our startup ecosystem. But at the same time, we've uh, gone out and tried to, as I mentioned with regards to the asset class heads, try to hire the best of the talents that's available. And then the other thing you have to always do is 
lot of it becomes part of your ethos based on the culture that is very important and startup if you are in the startup ecosystem having that culture is very very important so like, just even during covid miguel we did two hackathons one in the middle of the year and one towards the end of the year which was incredible to really bring about the entire company coalescing around ideas and it was like a two day hackathon and like really smart ideas come out of that but i think like that aspect of building the culture is very important so that when you have a core foundation then the next set of expansion becomes that much more easier so i think that has been very important and then to get the right industry leaders so uh, for our tech group our cto has been with the company since almost day one and so he has built a really and he comes from financial services uh, rishi and uh, he really has you know built a strong kind of tech team the same goes for product and various other functions so really uh, that's the critical aspect for every startup founder and startup executive so um, buenos aires porto alegre malta new york city i'm sure there's great talent but also those are great places <laughs> yeah sure and so you mentioned during covid you had uh, two hackathons right tell us a little bit about the impact of covid on the culture and on your day to day but maybe more importantly on your clients very good question i think covid for the second quarter for us was uh, very interesting because what happened is we really slowed down our investing process in the second quarter actually starting even towards like the beginning of march all the way till may and the reason for that miguel is that we did not know obviously there was a lot of up and down in the stock market but what happened is that in private credit lot of the transactions were not getting adjusted to like what was going to happen so you know we were still seeing pre covid pricing we didn't know how you know commercial real estate is going to evolve so we really slowed down lot of our asset classes and that in turn obviously had impact on our user base you know because uh, they had less options for to invest and then we really took a very conservative approach coming in q2 as the market stabilized and we kind of got more comfortable with it and then last second half of the year was really again very strong growth for us and and really the impact of covid has been twofold so because the stock market has been obviously at the all time high people are all looking to diversify which is the critical aspect of platform like real street in general the second thing is as you know during covid lot of people became investors if you see the phenomenal growth of uh, platforms such as robinhood people were at home and had more time and say really started thinking about their finances and i think that trend is going to continue so that obviously we are also going to get uh, benefited from trend like that obviously we are not a trading platform we are a platform where you invest it's kind of a fixed income it's an illiquid platform so you can't you know buy and sell or you have to wait till the maturity of the deal so there was really very good uh, aspects of how uh, our investors uh, you know reacted we feel that in the next couple of years given where the market is and generally given where the investor kind of behavior has been we will continue to see growth opportunities i think more importantly coming out of covid in the next couple of years there's going to be a lot of dislocation there is no doubt about that and so that will give uh, platforms like ours ample opportunity to review investment options and then bring the right type of product so i alluded to a fund that you know we are launching which is you know aviation obviously has gotten quite badly because of travel and things like that so you know there will be opportunities across hospitality and other industries where we feel that you know there will be lot of uh, ways for us to bring those products to the ecosystem so 
you know, generally that is how we have kind of dealt with COVID and, and, you know, generally that's how the platform has reacted. You mentioned that yours is an illiquid market, right? And that reminds me, early stage investing, that also tends to be a, an illiquid market. But there's a movement to make it more liquid, right? Just this week, Carta announced, you know, a big move. I believe they're uh, thanks. Yeah. 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 And, and so when you think about your asset class, you think it could become more, a lot more liquid than it is today? I think a uh, simple answer, Miguel, is yes. We are, in fact, in the process to launch a secondary market in second half of this year. And uh, ultimately, some of these things should uh, have liquidity. But uh, you have to be careful about the liquidity, right? Like generally in, on the street, the liquidity with like larger transactions are done through kind of bankers. And uh, one of the things that liquidity offers you is that liquidity has a premium, right? Like that's why stocks are, which are liquid, you, you have yields. And then, you know, if you have a illiquid product, then, you know, you generally tend to have uh, better yields on those products, right? And so there is a balance that you have to have. And so what I always tell people is that, yes, I think as technology evolves, what Carta X has done is really actually phenomenal, right? Like now, a lot of the early investors in tech companies and employees and things like that can get obviously liquidity. For assets like Yield Street, yeah, I mean, you know, I may be in a deal that is, you know, going well or not going well, but I may need money to like, you know, remodel my house, for example, or my kid is going to college. And, you know, if there is a platform where I can go and say, hey, I want to get out of this position. There are multiple different ways that you could you know, actually make a market for, for assets like that. And I think you, know, you will see that uh, technology evolve in the next uh, few years, Miguel, for sure. So you've kind of answered my next question, and it was going to be about the future of Yield Street. Sounds like you envision a more liquid market. Sounds like you envision you guys going into more asset classes. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the road ahead. Road ahead looks really exciting for me. I feel that the next decade, the coming decade, Miguel, is the golden age of fintech. Last decade was a golden age of tech. Mobile really dominated our lives. Apps really dominated our lives. And if you think about what happened is really coming out of this decade, seven out of the top 10 companies in the world by market cap are tech companies. And we all know who those are. And I think that the, the, the moment for fintech is now. And so specifically about Yield Street, I feel that uh, we are the company that is going to help you modernize your portfolio, taking all its mainstream. And, uh, but at the same time, I think uh, one of the things that uh, you know, we are really very interested in doing is really kind of uh, having this emphasis on income generation and how do you kind of you know, generate income from your investments. And so I'm going to talk to you about a, you know, this is completely hypothetical kind of situation, but uh, you know, from a vision perspective, but you know, think about this, right? You are investing on a platform such as Yield Street, and you generally tend to get like a monthly or a quarterly, call it dividend or interest payment and things like that. Now, if you could have that income generation component connect with your expenses, it would be really cool, right? So, you know, if you have, uh, let's say you, are, you drive a car and you have a $500 car payment. So on one side, we would say, hey, Miguel, you made $1,000 this month. Would you like to pay your car? And if you make that automated connection, that would be really cool because then now you can, you know, have your income kind of pay for some of your expenses. And that's another way for you to kind of complement your portfolio because obviously you have your stocks and bonds and your 401k on one side, and then you have this type of investment. So like, how does money in motion work? How can you effectively invest through your IRA? How do you kind of 
use some of the investments to pay off your expenses, loans? How does all that interact? And then, you know, there is going to be broadly interesting things happening in the challenger bank space. Open banking is becoming really becoming kind of mainstream also, which is how do you use APIs to offer banking functionality and things like that. So for example, Yield Street has a wallet uh, functionality through obviously a bank, but you know, how do those workflows all get connected? I think is going to be the future of fintech. Million, it's not every episode that we have a repeat entrepreneur. And as I was mentioning to you before we started recording, a lot of our listeners are founders themselves, are entrepreneurs or, or aspiring founders, right? I think it would be very interesting to hear some of your lessons from your years as an entrepreneur. Of course, I would love to. This may be a very non-traditional advice, Miguel, but uh, you know, having spent a lot of time here, so entrepreneurship, uh, number one, you have to understand is not about yourself. You have to bring your family along, whether it's your significant other, your kids, whatever may be the case, because they're all become entrepreneurs with you. And that is so important to get their buy-in because, you know, entrepreneurship is, is very hard. There are lots of ups and downs and things like that. So make sure that, you know, you have that support system and they completely buy into it because, you know, the long hours, the ups and downs, that is super important. And a lot of people actually ignore that because uh, they don't think that that is such an important aspect. But I think in order to be successful entrepreneur, you need to get their support. Number two is that a lot of people romanticize entrepreneurship is extremely hard. And uh, while it is very, very rewarding, you cannot be a part-time entrepreneur. And so, you know, you have to be committed to the idea. But once you're committed, you also need to focus on what your true north is and what are your milestones. And again, this is my personal perspective. So I always focus on revenue. I always focus on certain milestones because it's very easy to get carried away with your idea because you love the idea. Like that's why you've stopped everything and you're doing, doing it. But does the world love it? That is very important to know. And do you have paying customers? Do you have traction? How are you measuring a product market fit? So I think entrepreneurs sometimes take too long and linger into that whole aspect, right? So how do you make that, get that confirmation? That's the third thing, which is you got to have your MVP out in the market ASAP. Don't wait for that perfect product because you're never going to have perfect product. So get it out in the market so you can get proof points, right? And then uh, my last guidance would be, Miguel, you touched on this. You asked me the question is team. First 10 people are the most important. And what roles? It all really, again, obviously, that's not one size fits all, depending upon the company, right? And so if you, you have to have domain experts and the first 10 people are the most important and uh, you need to prioritize those guys because they are going to bring the next 25. So I think uh, having that team and culture is very, very important uh, in my opinion. Fascinating stuff. Really fascinating stuff. Milin, before we let you go, uh, one last question that we love to ask here on the Wharton Fintech Podcast, and that is about your hobbies. And maybe you can tell us a bit about how you spend some of that time outside of Yield Street or, or any professional commitments. Yes, actually, uh, love to travel. We, uh, Miguel spoke a little bit about uh, travel uh, earlier in, uh, when we were catching up. So love to travel, a lot of outdoor stuff. So, you know, do running, hiking, try to go, go skiing if, if time permits, uh, hanging, out, hanging out with friends. Big fan of podcasts because I actually run. 
So, you know, it's a, it's a great, uh, for me, uh, listening to podcasts is it's actually a double benefit. So you can learn stuff, but at the same time, you can entertain your, yourself. So Hidden Brain, for example, is amazing podcast. Adam Grant's podcast, I like a lot. You know, it only has a few episodes per, per season. You know, it's a fun podcast, but also gives me ideas for work. So those type of things are really interesting. Uh, love sports, watching sports mostly. I have not been playing much, but that's, uh, and, and then obviously, finally reading, try to read. A lot of the entrepreneurs that we get are readers, and that seems to be a, a common theme. Uh, and as a as a fellow immigrant who loves to travel, I, I definitely relate. <laughs> well, Miling, thank you again. You're definitely already our family of Wharton, but this is yet another reminder for you to to stop by campus once things go back to normal. And, and I'm sure everyone will love to host you. But thank you again. Miguel, for it was my us. pleasure. Awesome podcast, and uh, congratulations on the success that you guys have had especially in the last uh, you know, year or two. So uh, very excited that uh, you invited me to be part of that success. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.